Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that we sense that you have called us to worship tonight in this place. We're thankful that as you have called us that in a sense I feel that we are in the presence of the Trinity. Jesus, you're the one that we lift our petitions and our prayers to. And we know that you're lifting them to the Father. And we believe that he is not far away, but that he is here. Holy Spirit of God, we sense that you speak to our heart and you probe our lives and and you help us to know the petitions that we need to make. And we're thankful that you're here to remind us and to teach us. As we have been singing this evening, O God, great are you, Lord, and truly you are worthy of our praise. And we come to worship you, and we come to bring our petitions to you. And we ask you to hear our cry as we've been singing, and that you truly would revive us as we come to this place of worship and this particular series of messages that are important to each of our lives. As I look across our students in this service tonight, I realize that we do not walk through this life alone, but we have families and we have friends and we have relatives and we've seen prayer requests today for a sister and we've seen prayer requests that reach into our families of this community tonight. And we pray, Lord, that as we bring these petitions and these needs to you, that we will sense that you are here among us, and that you are touching our lives. Oh, Lord, may we be sensitive to your voice as you speak to us tonight the words of truth through your servant. And may our hearts be touched, and may we be obedient to what we hear, and truly walk in the light that is given to us. And as we face the challenges of the classroom, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. As we face the challenges of the workaday world, we pray, Lord, that you will give us courage and the ability to not only stand fast in our faith, but also to be able to say the words that we need to say to encourage others to find the answer that we have found in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we live our life in our homes, O Lord, we pray for our children and for our spouses that you will help us, especially those of us who have families that we have brought to this place to be sensitive to your leadership and that we might be sensitive to the needs of our families. Lord, how thankful we are that you love us. How thankful we are that you have touched us. And we depend on you to regularly touch our lives as we believe you will tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we find ourselves once again enjoying the benefits of the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year series, and uh, how pleased I am that you will be able to be a part of this tonight. Dr. T.W. Willingham was a leader in our church, a man who loved preachers, and who loved the preachers of Nazarene Bible College. And so he endowed this series of sermons that you'll be hearing this week, and I would hope that... uh, that Dr. Bowling might tell us some of the things that he knows about Dr. Willingham. I've heard the stories, but I never had the chance to hear him. Dr. Bowling had the chance to do that. He's not as old as I am, but somehow he was in the right place at the right time. 
Dr. Bowling, I first of all would like to introduce you to such wonderful students, men and women that God has called to this place. They pulled up from all across the country because they heard the voice of God, and this is the place that God has directed them to. And they are focused on uh, preparing for ministry and whatever ministry that God is speaking to their hearts about. And uh, we are just pleased to know them and for you to get to know them. Students, I am pleased to introduce to you tonight uh, a great spiritual leader, a friend of ours for many years, Dr. John Bowling. Dr. Bowling began his teaching career here at Nazarene Bible College back in the 70s, taught on this campus. And then he went to Olivet where he began to teach and ultimately pastored in Dallas, Texas, and then uh, back to Olivet to the college church where he was pastor. And from there he was elected president of Olivet Nazarene University. He, uh, he has a heart for ministers. He is an author of not only articles but of books. One of them is a textbook that is being used in one of our classes here right now. He is, uh, he is not only a great preacher, but he is respected as a leader. And so at the last General Assembly, we almost elected him general superintendent until he stepped forward and said, I'd like to withdraw my name. If he had not done that, he would be one of our general superintendents, I'm sure. Dr. Bowling, we, we love you and appreciate you giving us these hours together. Tell us a little bit about Dr. Willingham as well as you come to speak to us tonight. Welcome to Nazarene Bible College once again. Thank you, Dr. Sanders. Hi, everybody. I just want to look at you a minute. I had dinner with Dr. Sanders and all he could talk about was you. And I said, I, I just got to see this crowd. And I think you're right, Dr. Sanders. And uh, coming onto campus, it took me back to uh, younger days when I was a faculty member here and uh, really got to know students and their families. And uh, it's really why I got up today and left uh, my home and my work and came here, because I believe in Nazarene Bible College. This is a strategic place, not just in the Church of the Nazarene, but in the Kingdom of God. It stood the test of time. And the work that you're doing today is some of the finest work that's happening. And I believe in you. Now, I understand I don't know you. But I know something about you just by knowing that you're here. And, uh, and knowing that you not only heard the call and said yes to that, which is no small thing. In fact, it's an overwhelming thing to say yes to the call of God. But it's the right thing. And then to match that with a commitment to preparation. And it's always that way. When God calls us, He calls us to a life of preparation. I have some good news and bad news. Preparation doesn't end when you graduate from here. <laughs> It'll change, but you'll learn a lot, hopefully, the rest of your life. I'm honored to be here. I'm really thrilled you're here tonight. I know that you don't normally come on Monday nights, so it says, it says a great thing. I'm honored by that. God is honored by that. This hour, none of us will ever have again in all our life. And we've chosen to give it to God, and I believe God's going to honor that. So thanks for coming, and I do hope in the next couple of nights I have a chance to get some names and faces as well. Wonderful privilege to be with Dr. and Mrs. Sanders. Uh, he is a leader in the church, models what we preach, lives out. Uh, I, I just continue to appreciate his creativity, his commitment, and uh, particularly his leadership here at Nazarene Bible College. And it is a special honor to be here as the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year. Uh, I, I won't take time to tell you everything, but when I was uh, a, a student, 
uh, preparing for ministry, I did have the chance to hear Dr. Willingham. He was quite a character. <laughs> he was uh, such an interesting man. Uh, Dr. Sanders mentioned to you that I'm from Olivet Nazarene University. Olivet was founded in 1907 in a little town called Olivet, Illinois. And uh, just a very difficult thing to start a school from scratch. And, and yet that's fertile ground there in eastern Illinois. And it, it took root and began to grow and developed. And by, by uh, the 20s, there was a good group of students from all over. But it, it's always difficult to fund higher education. And it was then. The mid-1920s, 1926, Olivet Nazarene University, Olivet College, uh, came into bankruptcy. Uh, a young pastor in Danville, Illinois, was treasurer of the Board of Trustees. His name was T.W. Willingham, gifted pastor and uh, trustee. He could read the balance sheets very well. He knew what was coming, and uh, he recognized that there's just no way for the school to survive bankruptcy. And it looked like all that dream and hope and plan and sacrifice that got that school established was just going to be taken away. So Dr. Willingham went to work very quietly, talking to the folks. And on the day that the courts convened a public auction to sell the dream, to close the doors, to just bring to an end that work, as they began the auction, T.W. Willingham, a young man, stepped out of the crowd and purchased the school back with his money and money he'd been raising out there to keep the dream alive. He was elected president the next day. I always thought that's one way to do it. Just buy the school. And uh, served uh, Olivet as president uh, during uh, the late 20s and all the way through the 1930s. Think about that. Depression, keeping a school. And the school was strong when he left it at the beginning of World War II. He was a fascinating man. I'll try to tell you a little something every night about him. I wish you could have known him. And he did love preachers. And he fell in love with Nazarene Bible College. And he put his money where his heart was and uh, to invest in you as well. They tell me that normally you go to 9.30. Is that right? Well, we'll try to, we'll try to wrap up a little bit before then. Amen. You know, it's one of those deals I know. You, I can keep preaching, but you're going to leave at 8.15. Dr. Henry Jekyll was an upright, respected, Victorian English gentleman. He was honest. He was reliable. He was dependable. He was just everything that any good man would want to be. And yet, deep within him, there resided a kind of second personality, an alter ego, what someone might call a shadow self. This other personality, which was a part of Dr. Jekyll, could be released, really empowered, whenever he would take a drink of a kind of potion, concoction that he came up with, and as he would drink that, it would transform him from the good Dr. Jekyll to really the embodiment of evil. So much different that he even took a different name, Mr. Edward Hyde. The story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a story that, well, it can be read and appreciated on various levels. Young people like it. Teenagers like the mystery and intrigue of that story and the good and the bad and all of that. But if you read that story at an adult level, looking for the themes that are there, what you begin to see in that story is the story of the struggle of one man with this inner shadow self, this alter ego, this other personality. Dr. Carl Jung, in fact, the psychiatrist writer who coined that phrase, the shadow self. 
He said that within every individual, every woman, every man, there exists an alter ego, a kind of hidden personality, a person that, that isn't seen. We mask it. We cover it. But it's there. So Robert Louis Stevenson's story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is the story of this man's struggle with that, with that self and how by, by taking this concoction, he, he would really give himself over to, to the evil that was in him. Now, at first, Dr. Jekyll could control the process. He would take a drink and, uh, of the potion and he would then slip out and live this evil life, but he would come back and take another sip and he could be restored to being the good, respectable gentleman that everyone thought he was. But as you read the story, it becomes frightening because towards the end of the story, he becomes powerless to control it. He, he, he finally uh, confesses in, in, in a section called uh, his full statement at the end of the story. He tells how finally he lost control of the process and, and everything that was good in his life he finally lost because he became overwhelmed by that inner person. Now, why start a series with a story like that? Because it is almost the same story that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. When you get to this section of uh, Scripture, it is as if Paul kind of opens his heart in a, in a real moment of self-disclosure. It, it's almost as if we've torn a page out of his personal spiritual diary. And we begin to read about that. And as you read the story, you kind of see this same type thing playing out in his life. We're going to break into chapter 7, book of Romans, at verse 15. Listen as Paul writes. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Stop there just a second. He says, I'm an enigma to myself. I don't understand why I'm like this. I don't understand why the very thing I want to do and know I ought to do, I often don't do. And what's even worse, the thing that I know I should never do, I find myself doing that. He continues. And if I do what I do not want to do, verse 16, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. That becomes the hinge of the, of the entire passage. It turns, I think, on that declaration. It is sin living in me. He's pointing out that there is an interloper, an intruder in his life. Someone who takes control of his thoughts, of his, of his attitudes, sometimes of his reactions. He continues, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Paul says there's been a hijacking takeover in my life. I find that I'm really not in control. I'm suddenly and powerfully Mr. Hyde when I want to be the good Dr. Jekyll. Verse 21. So I find this law at work, this principle, this power at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now, that's the Paul that we think about, isn't it? 
I mean, that's the testimony that you expect when you're going to read from, from Paul. He says, in the inner person, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And then in verse 24, there is a kind of, well, it's kind of a wail, just kind of a desperate cry. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm dying, he seems to say. And he asks the question, who will rescue me? But notice in that question, there is hope. The cry is of a desperate person, but somehow he recognizes that there must be help available. He is helpless, but not hopeless. Thanks be to God, he declares. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, at the last part of verse 25, he kind of sums up the whole ten verses that we've looked at. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I'm a walking civil war. I'm a Jekyll and Hyde. Some days I'm, I'm victorious. I'm exactly living the kind of life I want to live. I believe God is pleased with me. And then all of a sudden, I end up failing. It is this condition, this inner war, I want us to think about tonight. I really don't want to spend a lot of time, however, going back through all of the defeat that is interwoven in that passage. The truth is, I don't think I have to tell you about it. We've all experienced that. We've all said, I'm never going to do that again, only to do it again. We've all had that kind of yo-yo Christian experience, up and down. So, we acknowledge that. We confess that. But I want to move on to the good news that's interwoven in this passage, the gospel news that begins there at verse 25 when he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. A couple of confessions right up front. First of all, this is a very difficult passage. I think it's fine to just acknowledge that. And I will tell you that I do not fully understand it. Which, of course, puts me in violation of um, one of the principles of homiletics. You should only preach what you know. Um, That'll, that'll help you. But there, I, I'm probably going to preach some things that I don't know tonight, but I'm just confessing up front. Because I think some of what I do know in the midst of this might be helpful to us. So it's a difficult passage. Let's put down a few benchmarks just to kind of get the lay of the land here, all right? First of all, this inner struggle which Paul is talking about in the last part of Romans 7, it's a struggle that exceeds human understanding. That is to say, you will never rationally figure out this kind of a life, this Jekyll and Hyde kind of experience. That's what Paul is declaring in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. The reason he can't understand it is that it is not a rational issue. It, it doesn't make sense. And that's his complaint. I don't understand why, when I want to do the right thing, I still do the wrong thing. I'm a riddle to myself. So that's the beginning point here. That's where he, he begins. That on a rational, intellectual level, I can't make sense of what I've been experiencing spiritually. There, there, there's no way to figure out this inner conflict. And remember, this is Paul writing. This is no mental midget. 
This is a very well-educated, dedicated man. And yet he, de- he, he, he de- uh, declares, I can experience great moments of spiritual victory and then turn right around and have these times of defeat. How true to life that is. I'm 54 years old. I know you're surprised at that. Uh, but probably just looking at me, you could tell that when I was 18, I was quite a basketball player. I, it just shows, I understand. You probably went, man, that guy could play ball. I could just see that. And I did play ball growing up. Uh, it's been a long time ago. But I remember one particular conference game, playing basketball. I played most of the first half school and was starting the second half as well. And at the beginning of the second half, it began with a, with a jump ball, and the ball was up, and the tall guy on our team, the center, went, and he tipped the ball right to me. And I put one of those moves that I was so well known for on my man, and I broke the other way. And I got a step or two on the guy that was guarding me, and I broke right for the basket, and probably 10, 12 feet out, I stopped and jumped and squared my shoulders and looked at the basket and let that ball just roll off the end of my fingertips. And just as it had left my hand, I, I heard my coach, I heard, I heard my team, I heard lots of people in the stands yell, Wrong way! True story. I had to stand there and watch the ball go in to the other team's basket. You know, at the half, he changed ends, and I just reaction there. Uh, in fact, uh, I, well, it was kind of interesting. I was, I was voted uh, most valuable player on both teams <laughs> that night. So, uh, now, my performance, I mean, my, my intention was right, okay? I, I was trying to do right. Uh, I, I wanted to do right. Uh, my performance in terms of eyeing the basket and doing the fundamentals to make the shot, all of that was right. But I had this momentary lapse and I just forgot which way I was going. Now, we can all understand that. People make mistakes, right? People who are good people, who are well-intentioned people, they make mistakes. We can understand that. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not saying, hey, sometimes you're just going to misread it. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to forget. You're going to do something. Just, it's a mistake. You can understand that. Paul can understand that. But in verse 15, he says, I don't understand what's going on here. You see, he's saying that there's something more than just a mental lapse here. There is a deeper issue. It's an issue not of misunderstanding or forgetting. He identifies the conflict there at verse 19. For what I do, is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, understand that Paul is not saying, I never do good, nor is he saying, I always do evil. Nor is Paul confessing to some great crime. I, I robbed a bank in Corinth or I killed a man in Athens. No, he's just simply saying, in spite of all of my commitments and all of my good intentions and everything I know, sometimes I don't do the very thing I want to do And worse than that, I end up doing the thing that I know I should not do. And he says, I'm such a contradiction to myself. It's not that I don't know what is right. It's not that I don't want to do what is right. Look at verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So it's not an understanding problem. It's not even a will problem. Because he wants to do what's right. It's a power problem. 
It's a strength problem. The strength to somehow overcome that which seizes control of our life and takes us in an opposite direction. So his complaint there in verse 15 is, I don't understand what I do. The conflict is, is, is then played out. I, I want to do good and I, I end up doing wrong. Verse 16 is, to me, a very troubling verse. It says, and, I, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. What in the world does that mean? If I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. Stay with me. I think this is a subtle point, but, but I think it's, a, it's an important point. Paul is saying that instead of losing hope because of this conflict that's going on, this civil war in his own life, instead of losing hope, he begins to understand the nature of the problem. I wish I had the ability really to unfold this passage for you. Um, the, the word that Paul uses here when he says, I agree, is a word that we get the English word symphony. He says, I'm, I'm in symphony with God. I, I want to do deep within me. I, I don't reject the will of God. I don't resent the will of God. I just can't seem to always do the will of God. But it is from that recognition that I think Paul begins to understand that no one can win that war in his or her own strength. This is why I think when he gets close to the, the end of the, the chapter, he says, finally, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that if I do wrong, and yet I know within me I want to do right. It tells me there is spiritual life within me. It tells me that I do want to do right. It tells me that I know right from wrong. It begins to bring into focus what the real issue is. And the issue isn't my own intention, my own will, my own commitment. It is sin living in me, he said. He begins to move into that at verse 23. But I see another law, another force at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, it's very important to recognize that Paul is not saying that it is his humanity, his physical flesh, which causes him to be at war with God. The problem is not that we're human. The problem is that even as believers, there remains within us this root of sin, carnal nature, this old man that continually grabs the reins of our life and leads us away from what we want to do and toward what we don't want to do. Verse 17 again. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So, the problem preventing a victorious, consistent Christian life, it's not us in the sense that it's our humanity. The problem is the sin nature which resides in us. We're not at war with God. That sin nature is in war with God. And we become the battlefield. And it feels like that sometimes. So is there no remedy to this? I mean, are we helpless? Are we just bound by that? Are we, are we condemned to a life of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? I mean, some days, and as you mature, you get better and better, but you always kind of have that thing going on. 
thanks be to God, Paul says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is deliverance. You see, God has made provision not only for us to be forgiven of our sins, adopted into His family, made alive in Christ, but He's also made a provision through His sanctifying presence to cleanse us of that sin which creates this shadow self. That really becomes clear when you step out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8, which begins like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Then he goes on to verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, if the Spirit lives in you. The real secret, the only secret, only answer to spiritual defeat is found in the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit. You cannot win the war within by simply trying to do better. It's not a will problem. You cannot be educated to the degree that you win this. It's not a mental problem. It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. That's why Paul later can kind of go on and give testimonies that are quite different than this. I want to do good and I end up doing wrong. What does he say later in the New Testament? We're more than conquerors through Him who gives us strength. Another point, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But he's learned the lesson that he cannot do it just in his own strength. He must have this presence, power of the Holy Spirit. And that's at the very heart of our understanding of entire sanctification. That God has not saved us, redeemed us, forgiven us, and then just leaves us enslaved to sin. God has also made provision to cleanse our heart, to empower us with the Holy Spirit, so that in that moment when we have to say yes or no, in God's strength, we can say yes to God and no to ungodliness. Are we perfect? Well, not in the sense that you might not ever shoot at the wrong basket. <laughs> okay? You're going to do that. You're going to make mistakes. You're not, you're not as mature as you're going to be along the way. But I'll tell you, it can settle that divided heart as you come to Christ. Over, over Christmas break, I was uh, reading a, a, a book called uh, The Difference God Makes. And uh, I was struck by a little story in the, in the um, preface of the book. Uh, the writer, a guy named Peter Hale, uh, is writing just really before he starts the book. He says this, when my daughter was three, she was often told that writing on the walls of her house with pencil or crayon was to be avoided on pain of serious consequences. She was assured that some heavy-handed justice would pursue her if she indulged in this admittedly entertaining activity. One day, however, the urge to leave her mark on the world got the better of her. Let me say in her favor that she did not go berserk as some children might and cover the whole wall. In fact, she was extraordinarily restrained. The mark was no more than, say, an eighth of an inch. But it was there in red. Remorse struck her after a period of time. And as I was quietly working at my desk, she came in and asked for my scotch tape. Later, I happened to go into her room and was surprised to see a piece of Kleenex carefully scotch taped to the wall. 
Underneath, I found the eighth of an inch red mark elaborately hidden. Then he makes this word of commentary. She was trying to cover up what she had done. That's a preoccupation many people never outgrow. The older we get, the more skillful we become. Instead of scotch-shaped Kleenex, we use words and calculated actions to obscure who we are. We put up a front to cover up our lives that are out of order. See, God offers us something better than just covering it up. He offers us the opportunity to clean it up. And there is a world of difference. And that happens as we recognize that in our own strength we can't win the war within. But if we will move out of chapter 7 into chapter 8, if we allow the Holy Spirit of God to come and really become the living presence of God in our life, controlling our thoughts and actions and, and being the person that is really there living our life with us, then you move to a level of victory and peace and power that really you cannot know any other way. You will encounter in ministry lots of folks who are living in Romans 7. They're good folks. They've made a commitment to Christ, but they're battled every day. We must help them move as we talk and teach them of the Holy Spirit. There may be someone here tonight who's still stuck in Romans 7. It happens. And the good news is, at any moment, we can come and say, God, I, I, I'm tired of covering up what's undone in my life. I really want to get cleaned up. I, I just want the Holy Spirit to fill us. That's like going to come and lead us in a, in, a, in a hymn. Whenever the Word is proclaimed, we need to take a moment and think about it and respond. I don't know what the response to this message from Romans 7 ought to be for you tonight. If you've, if you've moved into that Spirit-filled life, then part of our response ought to be to thank God for, for helping us to, to break out of that bondage. If you're still struggling on it, let's just confess that. Let's just move on into Romans 8. And then let's ask God to keep us really focused in our own ministries to help others. It's really what the Church of the Nazarene is all about in trying to bring men and women into this deeper light of true heart holiness. Let's sing together and then I want to have a closing prayer.